Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you this morning to dig into God's Word. It's nice to have a break from preaching, but I'm always excited to come back and continue to study that started exegetically years ago. I don't even... 2013, maybe? I think this is message 149. And uh, all these messages are available online if you want to go back and uh, listen to some of our teaching. I've probably visited every single book of the Bible at, at least twice as we've studied verse by verse the book of Revelation. I'm a student of prophecy. I believe Bible prophecy is important or it wouldn't be there. And the Bible equates prophecy or the spirit of prophecy with the testimony of Jesus Christ. The purpose of prophecy is to point to the Messiah. The purpose of prophecy is to give us hope, distant hope, and particularly dark times. And it's worth studying. I don't believe that Bible prophecy is composed of dark sayings or dark secrets that require a scribe or a, a wise man or a biblical scholar to unfold for your understanding. The Bible was written for the common man. The Bible was written that we might know God. And the Bible means what it says. It doesn't need to be interpreted. Because when the plain sense is common sense, there is no other sense. So I don't like to refer to one's interpretation of Scripture. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in my interpretation of Scripture. The Bible says that no Scripture is of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so these things were written to us. We can understand them. They're not dark secrets. And they're worth studying. And so we've been camped out for weeks now between Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 and Revelation 20 verse 7. We're camped out there. And like we've done several times in this study, I've felt it worthwhile to pause and let Scripture interpret Scripture. We've done that with Daniel's 70-week prophecy. We've done that with the person and the work and the spirit of Antichrist. We've done that with the rapture of the church, which is a biblical doctrine, which is Bible, which is true, which is what we believe and teach. That's what we look for every day. This isn't something that just was mentioned once or twice in Paul's letters, but Jesus taught it, as did the Old Testament prophets. So there have been times when we've paused to look at biblical doctrines that precede from what John says here in Revelation. And that's what we've been doing here. We've been looking at the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of our Lord. If you recall here in chapter 20, the Bible mentions specifically a thousand years six times. It says it six times. <clears throat> so a thousand years means a thousand years. If it doesn't, then John 3.16 doesn't mean whosoever. And so there are those out there that teach that there's no such thing as a millennial reign of Christ. All this stuff was fulfilled in 70 AD. Those that teach such things are not very good students of history and aren't really aware of what took place in 70 AD and what took place after to draw such conclusions. But when the Bible says a thousand, it means a thousand. And it doesn't say it once here. It says it six times. And so there's a thousand-year period a period of jubilee, a period of the kingdom that's coming to this present earth 
whereby God will fulfill all the promises that were made to Israel and the church in this present creation. It will be done before God wraps it up and does away with this present creation and brings a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We've been talking about that. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the body that takes place for the church at the rapture. On such the second death, the lake of fire has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Remember the word Christ just means Messiah. It's the Hebrew word Messiah. And shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, at the end of that period, we see that Satan is loosed from his prison. Satan is imprisoned at that time. He's, his ministry of deceiving the nations comes to an end. And yet when he's let loose, we're going to see that man's ready, willing, and able to rebel against the king. But between verse 6 and 7 is an entire thousand-year period. And the Bible has much to say about this period, much to say about what it will involve. And these things are written for us just as they were written for the people to whom the prophets originally penned them. They were written in times when Israel was under God's judgment, when the days were dark, when the people were rebellious, and when there was only a small remnant. And they were written at a time when salvation for Israel wasn't anywhere close in the future. Yet they were given to give the remnant a distant hope. A distant hope that one day it would all be made right. You see, in Christ we have what the world does not have. The world can offer temporary hope. It can offer or claim hope in the near future. Our politicians like to talk about hope when it becomes election time. All of this talk, and it's never fulfilled, and yet the people of America are stupid enough to believe it every two and four years. Stupid enough. We deserve the government we get. We deserve it. Whatever happens in November. But we're above that in Christ because in Christ we have a distant hope. A distant hope that cannot be seen, but it's assured, and biblical prophecy proves it. Time and time again, God has demonstrated that He does what He says He's going to do, exactly like He says He's going to do it. We can trust Him. We have a distant hope. Paul speaks of those who are without God in the world and have no hope. Apart from the Lord, we have no hope. And that's the big problem with the political situation here in our country today. I appreciate the president. I voted for him in 2016. I will never apologize for that. Never. I appreciate the fact that he's not an enemy of the Christian, of Israel, or the church, or the Bible. He frustrates the mess out of me. I do enjoy the tweets. They're entertaining. He's got his share of problems. I appreciate some of the changes that have been made. But when I look at society and I look at even his supporters and the people that claim to be on the right, I have a fear. I have a fear that we're not looking to the right source. I fear people are looking to a man to bring greatness to this country. And that can't happen. 
This country can never, ever, ever be great until, number one, it acknowledges its sin before God. There, the blood of the unborn, the sodomite abomination, the sins of this country, the greed, the pride and the arrogance of our people, the laziness, the lightly esteeming of God's truth, the rejection of the wisdom of our fathers, all of these things are sins in the eyes of God. And until we acknowledge them as a nation, I don't care how strong the economy is. I don't care how good your speeches sound. I don't even care if you attend a pro-life event. Because the reality is, where God is concerned, there's only one answer for abortion in this country, and that's to stop it, to end it. So if you're talking about anything short of that then you're at enmity with the Lord God. 